0: You are listening to the Already Gone Podcast, sharing stories of the missing, the murdered, the mysterious, and the lost. While last week's case was a listener suggestion, this week's case is one that I happened across while doing research on another story. August 5th, 1977. On the cover of the Detroit News, a bold headline, GM executive found slain, and beneath it, in smaller print, wallet found nearby. Well, what happened here? I read the article, and I searched for more of them. I managed to find what I was looking for. About ten stories in all, most of them in the weeks immediately following the murder, and then nothing for months. I found a follow-up story in May of 1978, and then, nothing. My curiosity was piqued. I sent a Freedom of Information Act to the police department, who investigated his death. Of course, I wanted more information, but really, I wanted to know if the case was closed. Then, something strange happened. A couple of hours later, my phone rang. The records department. She received my request, and yes, the case was still open. She'd found boxes of files in their records room. At this point, having read the stories, and knowing that the case was unresolved, I had to know more. I sent out Freedom of Information Act requests for information, but since the case remains open, there's only so much they will release. I get it, but I still want to know. Not just what happened, but why it happened. Here's what we know. Someone murdered Carson McDowell, a 43-year-old father of two. Tortured him, killed him, and left his body by the railroad tracks just north of Eight Mile Road. So come with me to the days just before the death of Elvis Presley would shock a nation, to a time when Atari, Commodore, and Apple first released machines that would change the way we live, work, and play. It's in Dearborn that our story begins, on a winter day in early January 1976 at the debut of a beautiful new luxury hotel on a spot hand-selected by Henry Ford himself. The city of Dearborn, long the site of the world headquarters of Ford Motor Company, is synonymous with the automaker. If you've ever taken a ride down the Southfield Freeway, perhaps headed to the airport, or to work at Ford Motor Company, or for a day of sightseeing and history at the Henry Ford Museum or Greenfield Village, then you can picture the shiny, metallic glory of the Hyatt Regency. The 14-story building sits at an angle next to the freeway, and if you are of a certain age, you may remember the monorail that made a 90-second trip from the hotel to Fairlane Mall. When the hotel opened in the first week of 1976, it was quite a production. Thousands of people visited the Hyatt just to have a look around. The monorail, a Ford Motor prototype, was a big draw. Then there was the revolving floor in the lobby. The floor had two speeds, very slow, offering one revolution an hour, and slightly faster, with one revolution every 40 minutes. The grounds of the hotel were equipped with a helipad, so important guests didn't have to deal with traffic between the hotel and airport or their destination and the Hyatt was the largest convention hotel in the state when it opened, with 800 rooms. Now, some 40 years later, it's been pared down slightly, to about 770 rooms. Some of the rooms were removed to make way for a swimming pool. As opulent and modern as the hotel was, it did not have a swimming facility until about 1980. On the morning of August 4th, 1977... Carson McDowell was headed to the Hyatt Regency Dearborn. McDowell was 43 years old and a sales executive with the General Motors Corporation. He'd been with GM for 18 years, and he'd spent much of the previous day at the Hyatt attending this conference, but Wednesday he was expected to present. It was an important moment in his career. McDowell, a married father of two children, lived in the upscale Pine Lake Estates neighborhood of West Bloomfield. While their spacious colonial wasn't on the water, they did have lake access. And if you aren't familiar with the neighborhood, but know the area, they were near Orchard Lake Road at Long Lake. McDowell arrived home from the conference around 2 a.m. on Wednesday morning. He got a couple hours of sleep and was up at 6 a.m., showering and dressing in a plaid sport coat, blue trousers, a dress shirt, and a tie. He wore dark loafers on his feet. Before getting behind the wheel of his yellow station wagon with wood panel trim, he poured coffee into a travel mug to take along for the ride. His wife, Anne, would tell police that he left at 6.45 in the morning, giving himself an hour and fifteen minutes to make the twenty-two mile or 35-kilometer drive south and slightly east to the city of Dearborn. Google Maps tells me his best route would be to take Middlebelt Road south to the Lodge Freeway, then the Lodge to the Southfield, and that would lead him nearly to the door of the Hyatt. There was no reason for McDowell to venture further east, no reason for him to be in Detroit that morning, or anywhere near the Woodward Avenue corridor. No reason at all. At least, not one that we can determine. At 10 a.m. on Wednesday, August 4th, McDowell was expected to take the podium and address the sales executives assembled there. McDowell was an assistant merchandising manager for truck sales. His absence was noted, and a call placed to the McDowell home. His wife, Anne, was concerned. He'd left that morning, dressed and ready to go. Maybe there'd been an accident. She made a call to the West Bloomfield police advising them that her husband was missing. And there was no word from McDowell, and no sign of him either. Late that Wednesday night, his car, the yellow station wagon with wood paneled sides, was spotted in Detroit, just south of Eight Mile Road on Danbury. We're going to circle back to what's happening in this area. But I want to mention that this Detroit neighborhood, this is the same place that 18-year-old working girl and murder victim, Deborah Rentschler, will call home in just three years. We talked about Deborah's case in episode four. In 1977, the Woodward Avenue corridor south of 8 Mile Road was not a safe or family-friendly place to be. So while his car was noticed, back in 1977, there wasn't a computer to look up a license plate on. So the Detroit police, while aware of the car, may not have known it belonged to a missing person. It wouldn't be until early afternoon on Thursday the 5th that railroad workers from the Grand Trunk Line would spot a body in the weeds and tall grass off Wanda Avenue. Only then would the car's location become significant. As rail workers backed a caboose down the line so they could pick up two rail cars, they spotted what they thought was a mannequin. The rail worker hopped down and went to investigate. And that's when he realized it wasn't a mannequin. It was a body. Being careful not to touch anything, he saw an ID on the ground and recognized the name. Carson McDowell. He'd heard about the missing man on the news that morning. So the rail workers called the yardmaster, who called the police. Carson McDowell, father, husband, and General Motors executive, was no longer missing. Over the next several days, his death was splashed across the front page of the Detroit News and Free Press. However, this wasn't the first time McDowell made the newspapers. If you went back 18 years to 1959, when McDowell was in his 20s, He and three of his fellow members of the Oregon Air Guard made headlines when their planes collided over Mount Hood during a training exercise. They were flying F-89 Scorpion fighter interceptors on a routine training mission when they collided at 27,000 feet. People on the ground saw the spark and fire from the accident. When one of the planes exploded in midair, the fireball could be seen for miles. The outcome seemed grim. Rescue teams were scrambled and went in search of the missing men. While the four men were initially feared lost, all of them ejected safely and survived the accident with minor to moderate injuries. The paper reported that his wife, Mrs. McDowell, collapsed to the floor in, quote, sheer joy when she learned that he was safe. McDowell came away from the accident with a sprained ankle, bruises, and minor burns. It would be another 18 years until he again made headlines. Carson McDowell was born in Kansas in 1933, the son of Harry and Grace Tate McDowell. He grew up in Great Bend, about 100 miles from Wichita. Carson was one of three children. He attended the University of Denver and Wichita State University. In 1958, he earned a degree in Business Administration. After graduation, he took a job as a clerk with the Chevrolet Motor Division in Portland, Oregon. This was about the same time he met his wife, Anne. Anne Mitchell was the only child of Dorothy and Francis Mitchell. Her father was the head of Pacific Bell for the entire state of Oregon. At General Motors, McDowell worked his way up through the ranks, becoming the passenger car merchandising manager. In 1970, he was transferred to Los Angeles, where he worked as the zone merchandising manager for trucks. And in 1972, they promoted him to assistant merchandising manager for trucks, and the promotion came with a transfer to Detroit. McDowell, his wife Anne, and their two children, Susan and Thomas, relocated once again. Five years later, his children are both in their teens, and his wife, Anne, is a homemaker. His career at General Motors is going well, and he's earning a good living. I was curious about Anne, so I went back through old newspapers, and her name came up again and again. Of course, she was listed as Mrs. Carson McDowell, and the stories were mostly from Oregon and in-the-neighborhood pages. She hosted parties, she volunteered at luncheons, she coordinated events. It all seemed very happy and proper. Anne McDowell is not aware of what's coming. Before we return to the crime scene, I want to talk about Ferndale in 1977. We are about 18 months past the disappearance and murder of Mark Stebbins, the first victim of the Oakland County child killer. Stebbins was kidnapped from Ferndale, from a location along Nine Mile Road, taken elsewhere, and then his remains would be left in Southfield. Ferndale is a relatively low-crime area, lots of families, walkable neighborhoods, and a bustling shopping district on Nine Mile, which, if you remember that shopping area, I want to say that I still miss the big F&M store. But I digress. There are not a lot of murders in Ferndale. It was a safe area then, and it is a safe area now. Eight Mile Road, the southern end of the city, is the county line separating Oakland and Wayne counties. 8 Mile is also the border between the cities of Detroit and Ferndale. I mentioned earlier that this area, just south of 8 Mile along Woodward Avenue, is where Deborah Renschler, whose unsolved murder we covered way back in Episode 4, lived and worked in 1980. This part of north-central Detroit boasts several bars, motels, and nightclubs, and most of them cater to a less wholesome clientele, And the neighborhood, near State Fair and Woodward, is well known to the vice squad. Please, bear in mind that anything we discuss here is speculation. We can't say what Carson McDowell was doing near 8 Mile and Woodward before his meeting at the Hyatt. In fact, an inability to nail down what he was doing in the area really hampered the investigation into his death. Newspapers shared that there were bartenders and bouncers who remembered clean-cut Carson McDowell frequenting their establishments, but not a single sex worker came forward to say that they'd done business with him. They had nothing to lose by speaking up. No one wanted to bust them for their work. They just wanted to get an idea of who McDowell was and who may have wanted to hurt him. The hard-working family man, air guard veteran, devoted husband— Everyone who knew him spoke well of him. This didn't match up with the violent death that he suffered. In this dark era, before cell phones and texting, I can't imagine what else might have brought him to the area. It was out of his way to go there that morning. If you look on Google Maps, Ferndale is a few miles east of the Southfield Freeway. Interstate 696 was not complete and did not extend west of I-75, which meant, to get there, it was intentional, taking surface streets, plenty of stoplights, and opportunities to head directly to Dearborn. So let's get back to the crime scene. We're just a few feet from the railroad tracks on a hot summer afternoon. McDowell is sprawled on his back. He's wearing a short-sleeved dress shirt, blue trousers, and socks. His eyes and his mouth are closed. His dress shirt is soaked with blood. The responding officer observed a cut on his left arm, and that McDowell's necktie was disturbed. It was drawn tightly around his neck, the tail pulled to the side. His pants appeared undisturbed, and one of his shoes was between his knees, partially obscured by his pant leg. The other shoe was found about twenty feet away. I would like to know if his socks were dirty, had he been forced from a car to the area where he would die. When the responding officer touched the victim's foot, he found the body to be stiff. McDowell had been there for hours. Detectives and crime scene analysts were called in to process the scene. His wallet, which had been torn open, was between his feet. His General Motors photo ID confirmed that it was the missing executive. The West Bloomfield police were contacted so they could notify his wife and children. When the connection was made with his car over on Danbury Street in Detroit, which is about one-half mile southeast of where his body was found, they towed the station wagon to the lab so it could be printed. Inside the vehicle, they found his sport coat and some papers. All of these items were on the floor in the back seat, and while that could be a sign that there was a struggle, it could also be the result of braking suddenly, which would cause things to fly off the seat and land on the floor. He was driving a Chevrolet station wagon, and any of the Chevy station wagons in the 70s were big, roomy vehicles, plenty of room for stuff to fly around. Seeing that it was a very warm day, with temperatures headed for the upper 80s, it's likely that McDowell never put his sport coat on, that he just draped it on the seat in back of the car, deciding that he would put the jacket on once he got to the Hyatt. McDowell's body was transported to the Oakland County Coroner for an examination. Of course, it's Dr. Sillery that performed the autopsy. If you haven't heard me go off on Dr. Sillery, I will spare you, but know that Sillery mishandled several autopsies during his tenure with the county. Again, I will mention Deborah Rentschler's case. Sillery examined McDowell and listed the cause of death as shock and hemorrhage as a result of multiple cuts to the left antecubital area. Or, in layman's terms, McDowell's left forearm was slashed on the inside, just below the elbow, and he bled out. I think that's called the brachial artery. Sillery placed the time of death 10 to 14 hours prior to McDowell being found by the rail workers. But the cut on his arm was not the only wound on the victim— Sillery told the press that in addition to the slash which caused him to bleed out, McDowell had been tortured. He suffered, quote, innumerable small cutting wounds on his body, as well as multiple bruises and cigarette burns. When robbery was offered as a motive, Anne McDowell thought her husband could have carried some cash on him, maybe as much as $100, but she also knew that he had not been to the bank to make a withdrawal. In addition to being a time before cell phones, this was also a time before automatic teller machines and debit cards, so if you needed cash, you had to physically visit a bank and interact with a teller. $100 does not seem like enough money to torture someone for. Also, while McDowell was an executive with General Motors, he was not high enough on the totem pole for someone to kidnap and torture him. The lab tests determined that McDowell had no alcohol in his system and there were no needle marks or injection sites on his body. His talk screen was clear. So what was he up to from 6.45 that morning when he left his house in West Bloomfield until his death late that night? What could lead him to skip the meeting at the Hyatt and put himself in such danger? Let's take a look at the timeline it's just after midnight on Wednesday morning when McDowell bids farewell to conference attendees at the Hyatt Regency and makes the 22-mile drive north to his West Bloomfield home. His wife will tell police he arrived home around 2.15 in the morning. This leaves at least an hour of his time unaccounted for. Remember, it's a 22-mile or 35-kilometer drive, which should take him about 30 minutes. It's not like he's going to be hitting traffic— at 1 a.m. on a weeknight. McDowell departs his home that morning at around 6.45, headed to an 8 a.m. meeting in Dearborn. Again, there's a lot of extra time here, which could allow him to detour to the Ferndale-Detroit border area and still make the meeting as planned. At 10.15 a.m., he is called up to speak at the Hyatt, and his absence is noted. Remember, this is a big conference center, thousands of square feet of meeting space. I don't know how many people were at the conference, but it's possible for his absence to go unnoticed all morning until he's called to the podium. At 11.30 a.m., residents on Danbury Street notice a yellow station wagon with wood-grain panels parked on the road. At 12 noon, Anne McDowell contacts West Bloomfield Police, telling them that her husband is missing. It's nearly midnight when McDowell's car is found by Detroit police. The cup of coffee that McDowell took with him that morning is still in the vehicle. The coroner theorizes that it's between 10 p.m. Wednesday night and 1 a.m. Thursday morning that McDowell is murdered near the train tracks in Ferndale. His body is located by the railroad workers around 1.25 p.m. on Thursday. So, Carson McDowell, where were you all day Wednesday? And what were you doing? And who were you doing it with? We're about to get into some pretty unsavory theories about his last day, so I want to remind you that they're just theories, because we don't know. It's August 6th when the attention-grabbing headlines begin to appear. GM exec tortured before murder. Vice strip is focus of death probers. The Detroit police worked with the Ferndale police to talk with sex workers, pimps, and other unsavory characters, trying to find out if any of them knew McDowell. And if they knew him, who was partying with him? They didn't get very far. No one admitted to knowing him. They reached out to bartenders and club owners in the strip south of 8 Mile. And on August 8th, the news reported on three theories that law enforcement was operating under. One that McDowell was murdered by a Murphy team. If you're like me, you aren't familiar with that phrase, so I'll explain it the way the newspaper did back then. A Murphy team or Murphy racket is when a sex worker solicits someone only to set them up to be robbed. She might get in his car and direct him to a deserted area for the transaction, only to have an accomplice waiting to rob the client. Theory 2 That McDowell was targeted for extortion. That someone had incriminating evidence of unsavory actions on his part and wanted a considerable sum of money from him for his silence. Theory three. McDowell was a closeted homosexual who spent the morning at a health club that catered to men who were looking to hook up. And I'm going to discount this last option right off the bat. There was no evidence to back this up. Police interviewed the manager of the club... That the newspaper mentioned, and he denied that McDowell was ever a member or a guest of the establishment. So while it's possible that McDowell was engaging in some extramarital activity, there is no evidence of who he was engaging in it with, or what the nature of that activity may have been. Looking back at the murder scene, this is a somewhat isolated area. The field where he was found was near the intersection of Wanda and East Chesterfield in Ferndale, This put him several hundred feet from the nearest home. When the Michigan State Police Crime Lab collected evidence around his body, they found several single-edged razor blades, as well as the packaging they came in, and a paring knife next to McDowell's body. I can't tell you if there were cigarette butts found near the body or if they printed the knife or razor blades. That information never made the papers, nor was it included in what I could obtain from his police file. This is an open investigation, and my access was limited. Sillery placed his time of death 10 to 14 hours before he was found, which means he died around 11 p.m. or midnight Wednesday night. So where was he all day? Did McDowell willingly skip the meeting, the conference where he was set to present to his peers? Or was he intercepted, either by an acquaintance or a stranger, Only to be held at an unknown location for hours before dying a lonely, violent death near the tracks. In addition to the many cuts, there were several cigarette burns on his body, on his arms, legs, and ears. I mentioned previously that his necktie was out of place, pulled tight against his neck and off to the right. I pictured him being pulled along or kept in place by that necktie. Someone had a great deal of anger toward him to spend hours cutting him and burning him with cigarettes and torturing him. In the week after his murder, a funeral was held in the Detroit area. Then McDowell's body was shipped west, to Oregon, the place where he once cheated death as his plane fell from the sky. His wife, the former Ann Mitchell, had him buried near her parents. she lost her mother about a year before her husband's violent death. Anne Mitchell McDowell, wife of Carson, mother of Susan and Thomas, passed away in 2011. She is buried beside her husband. The last mention of the strange death of Carson McDowell appeared in the Detroit newspapers in spring of 1978. Ferndale Police Chief Donald Geary was quoted as saying, "'It's a baffling damn thing, the why.'" Ferndale put in hundreds of hours of overtime attempting to close this one, even assigning a detective to it full-time for nearly a year. They couldn't close the book on this case. Chief Geary called the death of Carson McDowell a real whodunit, and I agree. The torture and murder of 43-year-old Carson McDowell remains unsolved. If you have information regarding this case, please contact the Ferndale Police at 248- 546-2395. Now, this week's episode was ad-free, but I do have a favor to ask. Please visit podcastlistener.com slash gone and answer a few short questions. It would be really helpful. Again, that's podcastlistener.com slash gone. Thank you. If you'd like more information about the show, you can visit our website at www.alreadygonepodcast.com. You can follow me on Twitter at alreadygonepod, or join our Facebook discussion group. You'll need to request to join, but answer a couple of quick questions, and we'll get you added to the group. If you're a dog lover, you should follow my dog Floof on Instagram. His Instagram is IamFloofTheDog. And I want to thank the host of the Dead Ideas podcast for doing an amazing drawing of Floof. And you can see that picture both on Facebook and on Instagram. I'm Nina Instead, the writer, producer, and voice behind the Already Gone podcast. I appreciate you listening, and please be safe.